Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and also if God is a God that is good and a God of love, why do bad things happen to good people? God has designed this world for a purpose, for a sovereign purpose, and you and I are involved in that purpose, and somehow he allows an evil and suffering to take place in this world because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The truth is God is not responsible for evil. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? to help you answer some of the deepest questions we all ask about suffering. It's profound truth from God's Word that you don't want to miss, so stay with us. Now here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? 1 Peter chapter number 1, beginning with verse 3 following. The first scripture I'll read is past tense, if you're in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Past tense, if you're in Christ. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you will have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Present tense future tense, and though you have seen him and love him, have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Past, present, future of those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's prepare for the teaching of the Word. Father, we're here to do business with you, and we rejoice in the truth of this great, great hymn that has been sung You are indeed our shield. Father, you speak now, and let me get out of the way as thy truth is broadcast among us. 
You speak, O oh Lord, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of an old and familiar book written, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago, is still a relevant question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the opposite of that disturbs me even more. Why do good things happen to bad people? But that question, phrased in a little highfalutin style of language, would go like this. If God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and also if God is a God that is good and a God of love, why doesn't he use his power and do something about the evil and suffering in our world and in your life and in my life? So the problem there is with God and the God of this Bible. God says he loves us. The Bible teaches us that. God says he's all-powerful. The Bible teaches us that. If he loves us and he's all-powerful, why do we grapple with evil and why is there so much suffering abroad in your life and in my life and as we know around the globe in such an extent that we've never even visualized it before? Why? Why, God? Why? By the way, most people who say, I do not believe in God, they're an atheist or an agnostic, say, I don't know, they use this problem as a reason they don't believe. And you confront them and say, you mean you don't believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. Why? If you say God is all-powerful and he's good, why does he put up with all the suffering in this world and the evil in this world? He can't be all-powerful and all-good. He could be all good and not all powerful, couldn't do anything about it, or he could be all powerful and not care. Which is it? And we back up and say, oh, it's a good question. You see, that's the reason given for people who are atheists. But I can tell you a secret, that's not the real reason they do not believe in God. No, 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 no. It sounds sophisticated and erudite, intelligent, modern. The reason most people don't believe in God, bottom line is, my opinion, they don't want God messing with their life. They want to call the old, their own shots for number one and get involved with it. Almighty could sure curtail a lot of their activities. That's the real reason, but it's more sophisticated to say, I don't understand why God puts up with suffering if he really loves us. That's, that's a lot fancier, isn't it? Now, you run into this problem. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God can do anything? How many people believe God can do anything? Would you lift your hand? Hands down. Every hand up was wrong. <laughs> Zero. Everybody flunked. You failed. God can't do anything and everything. You say, well, my goodness, I have. 
Can God draw a four-sided triangle? Hmm, can't do that. Cannot God add one plus one and get five? No, God can't do that. Can God tell a lie? No, God can't do that because by his very nature and character, it is impossible for him to lie. The capacity is not there. Oh, well, maybe God can't do everything. And then we run into the old philosophical riddle. If you've had a, a course in philosophy 101 somewhere, you probably encountered this riddle, this question. Can God make a stone so heavy that he cannot lift it? That, that's the stone paradox. Let me phrase it. Can God make a stone he cannot lift? Now, you see the problem with that. If you say, oh, oh, no, God can't make a stone he cannot lift. You're challenging his omnipotence. There's something he can't do. Oh, yes, God can make a stone he cannot lift. Oh, you're challenging his omnipotence on the other side. So the skeptics say, gotcha. <laughs> I got you there. So maybe the problem is with the definition of omnipotence. Omnipotence is not that God can do anything and everything, that he has the power to do anything and everything. Omnipotence means that God has the power to do what he wants to do, what he intends to do. That's what omnipotence means. See, that's the definition. And therefore, that, that paradox of the stone You've got two attributes of God coming at one another. You've got the attribute of God as the creator, creating power, uh, and you've got create, creating the stone, and you've got the God of God in his power to lift something. So you've got two attributes of God coming at one another. You can't do that. You can't look at this attribute of God and this attribute of God you have to take God with all of his attributes. So let's go back to our question. Can God make a stone that he cannot lift? The answer is no. You say, boy, that, that does away with his omnipotence. No, the fact that he cannot make a stone that he cannot lift is the result of his omnipotence. Do you see it? It's proof of his omnipotence. So it's a paradox, they call it, the paradox of stone. It's not really a paradox. It proves that he is indeed omnipotent in the sense he has the power to do what he intends to do. More power will not give him the ability to draw a four-sided triangle, will it? More power will not give him the ability to lie, will it? So we still have this problem. And look how it's expressed. Look on your screens. I want to give you how it runs down. Just read that with me. This is the argument that we're faced with so many times. Look at it. If God exists, there cannot be evil unless he has a reason to permit it. And I don't see any reason for God to permit evil and suffering. Do you? Number two, there's a lot of evil and suffering around. No argument there. There is no reason God should permit evil or suffering. Therefore, God does not exist. There you go. 
that exists. And there's a rationale, the escape clause, a lot of people do, and they build their case against God. Now, they accuse God of being like this. Let's say, for example, that this is the stream of life running right through here. Stream of life. Over here is creation. God is standing right here, and he can look all the way back with his omniscience, all-knowing. He can see all of history from creation all the way down to the present time, bang, and from the present time, he also can see all of the future ahead of time as it runs all the way into heaven or the end of time. God stands here, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and he observes the stream of life. Actually, God does not have foreknowledge. I have to think a little bit. I apologize. God does not have foreknowledge. He has only knowledge because in eternity, there's no time. Time is created by God. It's timelessness. It's infinity. It's eternity. So God just stands here, and he sees the future in the now. It's already happened. So God stands here, and he observes a stream of life. And we ask the question, if you are omnipotent and you do love, why don't you eliminate evil and suffering in the stream of life when you are right there on the bank of the river of life? Why doesn't God take action? Are we all together? You get it? Now, I want to introduce you to another word, theodicy. A theodicy is a defense of God. In other words, when people accuse God of not using his power to eliminate suffering, there are theodicies, defense of God, that people have come up with. Some are theological, some are philosophical. They come from every areas. So let's see about how you would defend God with a theodicy. Someone comes to you and says, man, the God you worship, the Bible, he allows evil and suffering in the world. He's supposed to be all powerful. How can this be? Here are some theodicies that are used to defend the Almighty, okay? First is the free will theodicy. We're creating the image of God. Primarily, the main most quality of being created in the image of God is we have free will. We can choose. We have freedom. And how that is like God. We're the only created being in all of the cosmos that has free will. Nothing else has free will but human beings. Nothing else has free will but human beings. And therefore, it is that free will that leads us into sin, leads us to suffering, leads us into pain, that gets us involved in evil. It's the choices, the decisions we make, and we make them in and of ourselves because we are free. You say, well, why didn't God make a world uh, where we wouldn't have to be tempted? Why didn't he make a world where we wouldn't have to take away our freedom? And if you take away your freedom, you know what else you lose? Love. You don't have the ability to love. 
I don't get that. You mean I can't love unless I have freedom? That's exactly right. Love is number one. Remember in Matthew 22, the lawyer went to Jesus and said, what's the main most thing we're to do? What's the number one commandment? Jesus said, that's easy. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and then love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Love's the number one thing. But listen, without freedom, we can't love. We'd be robots. We'd be machines. Love God. Oh, okay, I'm programmed to love God. Love people. Oh, okay, I'm supposed to love... That's not love. God is not a divine rapist, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't force himself on us because we have the gift of freedom. We have the gift of free will. And look at these points of free will. Look, God made everything perfect. One of the perfect things God made are free creatures. Free will is the what? Is the cause of evil. Therefore, imperfection, evil can arise from Perfection, not directly, but indirectly through, what's our word? Freedom. So we look back and say that free will is a defense. It is a theodicy to say we have evil and suffering the world because man has free will. And that's where so much of our suffering, so much of our evil really stems from. Number one, theodicy, free will. All right, number two, theodicy. I want you to look at it carefully. It is that we live in a fallen world, the fallen world theodicy. Okay, now what is that all about? The fall of man. Man sinned in the Garden of Eden. We were inherited with original sin, and the world has fallen. Therefore, it's easy to say, I suffer because I have sinned. And by the way, that's a valid thing. So many people, we know people right now, their whole lives is messed up, confused, bottom out, addicted, sick in so many ways, going through the dark night of the soul, like St. John of the Cross talks about. The dark night of the soul is when you cry out for God and God isn't even there. It's so you believe, it's so you feel. That's the emptiness, the loneliness, the estrangement, the dark night, and, and we cry out. You say, well, this happens because we live in a fallen world. A lot of suffering is a result of sin, right? But some people want to say, well, all suffering is a result of sin. That's what Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far said. Remember those guys? And Job, Job was suffering. Oh, how he suffered and his three erstwhile friends came up and said, Job, you've done a bad thing. Therefore, no wonder you're suffering like that. And God quickly set the record straight. That wasn't Job's problem. That was his problem at the end of Job. By the way, God gets mad at Job's friends and says, Job, go pray for those rascals. They tried to equate your suffering with your sin. That was not the deal with Job. His sin was not an overt moral challenge. And so we see that we live in a fallen world. Therefore, that's one reason that we, we fall into sin. And that is a defense of evil and suffering in the world. That's another theodicy. And look at another theodicy there. This is the anthropic theodicy. That's a big word. Anthropic. The anthropic principle. It is this. This world was made by design. It's a defense of God. And therefore, where you have design, 
you have to have a designer. Where you have an effect, you have to have a cause. And therefore, this world was made by design, the anthropic principle, and therefore we see that God has designed this world for his purpose. He has exercised the power in creation for a purpose, and this world is uniquely designed for life, for human life, human life. And therefore, we're the only planet that we know of that has the, those tectonic plates that move around. Earthquakes, tsunamis, weather, so many things involved there. We're the only one. So you not only have moral evil, you have natural evil that comes. And so this anthropic theodicy helps us understand that. To say it in a simple way, you take a violin, and, and a violin is made, you might say, you know, I don't like the shape of it. It may be too heavy, may be too small. The strings look a little awkward, but a violin is shaped by a designer. It's shaped in order to produce music, and therefore it has a purpose for it. Beautiful music. By the way, it's my favorite instrument, incidentally. It produces beautiful music because it is designed that way. So God has designed this world for a purpose, for a sovereign purpose, and you and I are involved in that purpose, and somehow he allows an evil and suffering to take place in this world because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So that also is a defense of God, the anthropic principle. Now here's an unusual, unusual theodicy. We say, Evil and suffering, you know, that's how they accuse us as Christians. It can't exist if we have an omnipotent God and a God of love. Let me tell you something. Those who are atheists, they've got a bigger problem with evil and suffering than we do. In other words, evil and suffering proves almost as good as any other theophany that, that indeed there is a God. You know, how does that work? You're an atheist. Atheist says, oh, I'm telling you, there's no God because there's evil and suffering. You say, how do you know what evil is? How do you know what suffering is? An atheist looks at the natural world. What do you find in the natural world, ladies and gentlemen? Might makes right. Big animals eat little animals. Have you seen the Serengeti? <laughs> oh, boy. That's the natural world, isn't it? Big nations gobble up little nations. We're seeing that everywhere now. That's, that's the natural world order. Uh, selection, natural selection, power. That's the natural world. So an atheist, that's all they have to go on. It's the natural power in the natural world. And we say, look, you're crying out for justice as an atheist. An atheist has no reason to call for justice. Just natural justice is there unless you have the introduction of a supernatural sense of justice. The natural order is all an atheist has. There has to be a supernatural addition to that for this to make any sense. So an atheist doesn't have a leg to stand on when they complain. And evil and suffering proves God much more than it disproves God. I want you to look at a statement about this. A very, very important statement. See it. If you have a God great enough to be mad at for not preventing evil and suffering, follow me, 
You have at the same time a God great enough to have a reason for, to allow evil and suffering you can't understand. If you got a God, you get angry at, man, God, there's evil and suffering. Look at my life. I'm mad at you. And you say, I don't understand it. Well, if that God is big enough for you to get mad at, he's big enough to have reasons that you and I can't understand or can't grasp as to why we're going through these dark valleys or deep places or other people are. Alvin Plantiger, one of the great apologists, has a cute little story that I love. If you have a pup tent, they're small tents, ladies, pup tent, and you go and you look in the flap of a pup tent, you say, hmm, there's not a St. Bernard dog in there. Hmm, that's right. You just can't hide a St. Bernard dog in a little tent. You can't do it. And he would say that. You say, that's accurate. Yep. No St. Bernard in there. <laughs> Nobody can argue with that. The same person goes to the pup tent and pulls the flap and says, there are no, no seams in there. Know what a no seam is? Yeah. Some part of the country, they have them. I've got into a nest of them. One. They're a little bitty meats that, that come up and, and you don't see them well, they bite you. I mean, they got a giant bite. How many, how many know about no seams? Oh, you've lived other part of the They have them. I don't think we have them around here. We may. Do we? Don't think so. Not bed bugs. No, no seam. You don't see these guys. <laughs> and so if somebody goes to the pup tent and said, well, there's no seams in here. Ah, how does he know there's no seam? You can't see them. <laughs> so what I'm saying, God has reasons for suffering in your life and my life, and we don't see it because his ways are higher than our ways. His agenda is far beyond our agenda. So we, we don't have a reason for everything. God does. We see this way that he proves himself. And then finally, there's another one that I want you to look at. That is a purifying theodicy. We, sickness purifies us. Have you noticed that? Had my chest split open, what, four or five years ago, and they tinkered around and put a lot of things here, there, and yonder, boy, that'll purify you. <laughs> sure will. It surely will, or it should. So the problem is suffering purifies. It cleanses. It helps us get our priorities right. When you're lying flat on your back, there's only one way you can look. Look up. It purifies. That's another theodicy for God. Now you put all of these theodicies together, giving some rational understanding of evil and suffering and why God is omnipotent and he's also a God of love, but we still have. You put all of them together, it still doesn't answer all of our questions, does it? Doesn't do it. And you can take any one of them. You say, well, free will is the best understanding of evil. It may be, may be, but free will has a hole in it as every one of these theodicies has a hole in it. Now, what's the free will hole? In other words, the idea that free will is, here it is. You have a four-year-old boy. You play in the yard. He's running towards the street. Car is going, shoo, 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 shoo. You run out there and grab him and get him before he goes to the streets and son. Oh, no, son. Now, when he grows up, gets to be about 15, he didn't come and say, Daddy, you remember that time you violated my free will and didn't let me run out in the street? 
I just haven't forgiven you for that. No, that doesn't happen. You say, well, here's our heavenly father that loves us more than a human father can love us. Why doesn't he sometimes violate our free will to keep us from having a wreck and running out into the streets of life? You see, the free will argument defending God isn't totally adequate. In fact, you can stand at the foot of the cross and you can look up there and you can ask all these questions. Why this God? Why that God? I don't understand this, this suffering, this evil, this problem, this situation. And you can ask all those questions and you'll never get them all answered. But there's one thing that you'll discover at the foot of the cross and that's all you need to know. That is that the man on the cross, the God-man wrapped up in human face, really loves you and me in and through all of this because this God-man didn't stay on the bank of the river of life. He jumped into the river of life with us, with us. And that makes all the difference in the world. You say, where was God when I hurt? He's right there. He's right with you. He's right, He's right in the middle of our suffering and our sorrow and our sin. He's right there at every fiery trial that Peter was talking about with us. Peter didn't say, well, if you go through fiery trials, you'll be, no, no, no. He says, when you go through fiery trials, we'll all go through those trials. What's the difference? He is with us. I, I, I think he was probably thinking about Daniel chapter 3. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Man, I love those three Jewish guys. Those three guys wouldn't bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar, who built a big statue to himself. So Neb said, throw them in the fiery furnace. This kind of looks like a fiery furnace here. You guys are already there. Uh, uh, he said, throw them in the fiery furnace. And so they heated up the fire furnace so hot that the guys throwing in those three little Jewish boys, those two little young Jewish men, man, they, they, they died themselves. And Nebuchadnezzar went, by the way, archaeologists have found furnaces like this also in the Persian area. So this is a legitimate picture. And Nebuchadnezzar went and looked in and said, man, you know, those guys, they believe in their God. Their God making save them. I don't believe it. But he looks in. He said, oh, there they are. One. Two, three, four. He said, how many did we throw in there? Three. What? There's one. Be still. Two, three, four in there. Who is that fourth one in the furnace with them? Oh. When they brought them out, they brought out only three. Who is that fourth one? The Bible said it was like unto the Son of God in the stream of life with us. That's the Old Testament, though, isn't it? Go to Isaiah 64. God says, I'll be with you when you go through the waters. You're in deep water. God is with you. He said, I'll be with you when you go through the fire. And when those three young Jewish boys came out of there, the Bible says they didn't even smell a smoke. They were not even singed. They were not even burned. And that's what Isaiah promised. He said, when you go through the fire... I will be there with you. When was this realized? In the New Testament. When Jesus 
got on that cross. The Garden of Gethsemane, he looked at that cup, so human. He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. What did he see in that cup? Let me give you a word that sounds like what it means. He saw iniquity. Ooh, that's a greasy sounding word. Iniquity. He saw all the violence, sin, grossness, hypocrisy, phoniness, immorality, filth in the life of this whole world in that cup. No wonder he said, Lord, I, this cup, let this cup pass from me. But then when they nailed the cross, remember he stood, he was on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Isn't this something? God turned his back on his perfect son when he most needed him. What, what kind of God is that? It's because now that cup of iniquity was placed in and of Jesus Christ. It was on him, and God cannot look on sin. By the way, that's a lot what is going on in God's sovereign plan in the world for your life and my life, but that's another time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken Jesus because he's taken all of our trash in and of himself. Where did Jesus go after he died? Well, there was Easter. Oh, no. There are those three days, and he went to hell, the Bible tells us. That's how much he loves you and loved me. He went to hell for us. That's where you and I need to go. By the way, I don't like the fact that God uh, sends anybody to hell. God never sends anybody to hell. Hell is the result of that free will, that choice that we make. And we stand before the Almighty, and we say, Lord, Thy will be done in my life. We surrender to him. Or we stand and say, my will be done. Thy will or my will. Thy will or my will. We're free and we have the choice to make that. But he died for us. I love 1 Corinthians 15. I could preach on Luke 15 every day, every Sunday, forever, and never get through with those stories of lostness in Luke 15. Also, the other chapter is 1 Corinthians 15. Now, there is a chapter that tells us about the resurrected body in life, in heaven forever. Now, there's a chapter. He said, we leave this life if we're in Christ. The mortal, that's us, puts on immortality. Sounds great. That which is fallible puts on infallibility. That is out of sight. And then he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, you can stay with that a long time, folks. Now, when we swallow something, we get bigger. Have you noticed that? <laughs> and so, death is all that's dark and dank and horrible and all that. But in Christ, Death is swallowed up in victory. It's taken in us. All the good, all the bad, all the gross, all the shameful, it's taken in us. And it, like food, digests, digests in us and, and gives us strength. And so, so death is swallowed, consumed in victory. Boy, what a magnificent picture we have. That's the 
promise of God through all the highways and byways and ditches and mountaintops. Man, he's there with us. And on that cross, he swallowed up death and all that leads to death and gives us victory. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I read a story along this line. And I've already preached this sermon a couple of times before I get here. It's gone out through television to two other campuses. So this has been heard four times. But I didn't finish like this, and I want to do it for you. I think it sort of finishes it off. Here is a child that's on the 10th store, 10th floor, floor of a building that's on fire. A child, 10 stories up, building on fire, no one with a child, smoke everywhere. The fireman is down at the bottom, and they have a, a net down there to catch a child. There's smoke everywhere. The fireman says, jump. And the little child says, I can't see you. See, he couldn't see through the smoke. And the fireman said, we can see you. We have a net down here. Jump. Have enough faith. Trust me. Jump. Now, let's put this together. The child is like you and me. Evil, suffering, we're on fire. The building we're in is on fire. The smoke is our ignorance. Right here, the fireman is holding the net and saying, jump. There's one missing thing. When I read this story, it says Jesus was the net. No, he wasn't. Jesus goes up with that child in that burning building and takes that child within himself, in his protective self, and then together they take that jump to safety. And that is salvation. So in the midst of evil and suffering in our world, the great gift that when we're in Christ, even death is swallowed up in victory, in victory. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Well, it's great to have Dr. Young in the studio as we wrap up today's program. Dr. Young, you say that God is in complete control of the world, and yet we still have free choice. Now, that sounds like a contradiction to many. Is free will just an illusion? No, free will is a gift of God. We're made in His image. And one aspect of being in His image is that we can choose. And therefore, we choose contrary to God's principles, contrary to the principle of nature, contrary to the principle of life, contrary to how God is says, this is how my children live. No, free will is a part of our being created in the image of God. And the truth is, when we walk against that which he wants us to do, the good news is we can confess our sin and turn from our sin. We would not be human. We would not have this remarkable image of the Lord God Almighty in us, in our humanity, if we did not have the ability to choose. 
It's one of the aspects that God has imparted to us in the creative act. And therefore, this makes us free creatures. We're not programmed. Uh, that, And we can love God or reject God. We're not programmed. We can say, God, I want to follow you, or we say, I'm going to go my own way. We're not programmed. And because we're not programmed, the Holy Spirit can convict us of sin. We can turn from sin and experience brand new life. This is what makes us distinctively human, different from other animals, the ability to choose. And as Christians, the Holy Spirit helps us and guides us to make those wise decisions and those wise choices. Thank you, Dr. Young. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.